In these days here together, we have been practicing mindfulness and awareness, mostly focused on the bodily sensations, be it in sitting, in the breath, or other body sensations, or be it in walking, or in other activities. Tonight I would like to look at being mindful of unwholesome or difficult or disturbing feelings and emotions and of the possibilities we have relating to them in ways that are skillful, supportive, and healing. The main reason why we meditate and practice, I feel, is freedom from suffering. A mind that is serene and peaceful within and compassionate and wise in its expression. What keeps us from being that way is not the outside world and circumstances, rather it's our own hearts and minds. To be more precise, It's the disturbing and tormenting emotions and mind states within us. The kilesa, as they're called in the Pali language, that which defiles and torments the mind. If we somehow could manage to get rid of our mind's ignorance and delusion and of our tormenting emotions such as our attachments and cravings, our anger and fears, jealousy and conceit and all the rest, we would be incredibly happy and peaceful beings all the time. But since it looks like we can't get rid of all these properties of our mind that easily and forever, It might be worthwhile to take some time to look at these difficult emotions and learn to work with them, to be with them in skillful ways. There are a number of ways of dealing with or relating to difficult emotions, and I'll just list them first. The first way of relating well known to us all, is to either express or to suppress a difficult emotion. That's one way. The next way is to work with precepts, guidelines, and with limits that we set ourselves consciously. A third way is to generate positive qualities, creating an inner climate that counteracts the unwholesome state. And eventually, there is the way of awareness, of non-doing and wisdom. And in some way, one could speak of yet the further possibility, that's to not have the unwholesome emotions arise because one doesn't create the inner conditions for them to arise. So let's look first at our 
usual way of relating to this disturbing feelings and emotions. When, for example, a person or a situation makes us angry, that anger first arises as an intense feeling together with the number of angry thoughts. And we get lost in thinking about what made us angry. And uh, we can see that here in meditation, how it works. There's somebody next to us does something we think they shouldn't be doing. And reactivity comes, thoughts comes, the whole story comes, strong feeling comes. If it's strong enough, it will spill over into angry speech. I hope that's not the case here in retreat, but it might otherwise in life. Cursing or putting down or blaming that person or that situation. And if the intensity of the anger continues or even increases, we will eventually manifest this anger in physical action. Whether it's in thoughts or speech or in our action, the emotion of anger is expressed, manifested. And as we know, this way of dealing with emotions is most often not very helpful, rarely bringing the desired result. It's rare that we express our anger and the person says, oh, right, it's true, you're completely right. Usually, the reaction is quite a different one more likely it causes more trouble. For this and many other reasons, we have also learned very early on in our life to suppress. We shut up, tighten up, we swallow, ignore, get busy with something else, pretend not to have noticed, or even keep smiling. Yet most of us I've also found out that suppressing, avoiding, ignoring creates even more suffering within and can be like a slow-acting poison within. So since expressing and suppressing both can be problematic, we need to look at other ways of relating to these powerful, unwholesome emotions. One way, which is mostly a way of protecting us from the trouble that results from expressing negativities, is working with precepts, with guidelines, guidelines of conduct, and with setting limits for ourselves, limits in terms of expressing unskillful emotions. In this approach, we protect ourselves and others from our anger, from our excessive greed and craving, from our need and desire to manipulate. We can decide, as we do here on retreat also, to follow certain guidelines or precepts of conduct, guidelines such as not intentionally killing or harming living beings, not stealing, of being very careful and responsible with our sexuality, of being honest, 
being very sensitive in ways we use alcohol, we use drugs, but also power or money or food and so forth. These guidelines are extremely useful. They're useful for retreats, and they're certainly also useful for life altogether. There can be a very powerful protection in many ways, protection for oneself and, of course, for others around us. Situations and circumstances can be both very enticing, strongly pressuring us into expressing negativities or acting in unskillful ways that we regret later on. Clear guidelines or precepts help us in that kind of situation. Shantideva, the Indian poet and bodhisattva, wrote, It is not possible for me to restrain the external course of things, but if I keep this mind of mind together, there's no need to control everything else. So it's making ourselves safe. I think that with ethical or moral conduct, it's also good, especially with precepts, it's good to be clear. It's not so much a matter of good and evil, or even a matter of right or wrong. If we keep morality because we're afraid of being punished, we'll end up like the person in the following story. A story about this man who was known for his very saintly character and his piousness. He had to go and see the doctor. He said, I suffer from a terrible, excruciating migraine, sir. Even though I don't drink, I don't smoke, I live strictly vegetarian, and I'm in celibacy, I still feel this pressure as if there were an iron ring around my head. There's only one possibility that can explain this, the doctor replied. It's your halo that has become too tight. (laughs) So it's not so much a matter of being good boys or good girls. Ethics, much rather is a question of what causes suffering to ourselves and others around us and what doesn't. It's a question of what creates trust and harmony in us, within us, and around us. And what thus protects us from painful, unwholesome emotions, from the kilesa. Ethical, sensitive conduct really is the basis for all spiritual growth. As the text says, just as a blind person does not see forms, So does one not see the Dharma, the truth about reality, when one is without an ethical outlook and conduct? And further, just as a tree without roots will not grow leaves, blossoms, or fruit, even so, 
Does one not become liberated when one lacks ethics? The next way or means to work with disturbing emotions is to develop and sustain the wholesome, positive states and qualities of mind and heart. In this, we create an inner climate which counteracts the unskillful emotions. And the principle behind this is quite obvious. Snow and ice will melt in the springtime sun. Darkness is dispelled by light. What is bitter can be sweetened by honey or sugar. So much of the time in our life, it's the habitual inner atmosphere, inner attitude that will color and determine how we perceive, how we experience the world around us. And again, you can look at this here on retreat as you go through the sittings and walkings. And I'll tell you a story that hopefully will illustrate this and a little difficult story, I find. I hope I get it right. And I also hope I get it politically correct. If I blow it, please forgive me. Okay. There is a cowboy and a Native American. <laughs> and they both come riding, and they come down into this canyon where they meet eyeball to eyeball. And the Native American does this. And the cowboy does this. (laughs) Then the Native American does this. And then the cowboy does this. And then they go their ways. Now the cowboy back in town in the bar talks to the boys there. He says, I met this guy in the canyon. This guy said, I have a gun. I said, I have two. (laughs) The guy said, I want your scalp. I said, piss off. (laughs) And he left. Now... The Native American, back in his village, in his tipi, he tells his story too. He says, I met this cowboy down in the canyon. And I said to the cowboy, what's your name? And the cowboy said, goat. I asked, mountain goat? He said, river goat. (laughs) And we smiled and we departed. The exact same event for both. Two completely different life experiences. The frame of mind we bring to a situation will determine how we perceive it, how we experience that situation. Therefore, it is a very helpful part in meditation and in life, of course, 
to take into account how, how we're being present. Not just that we're being present and mindful, but how, which inner attitude we do that. Are we mindful and aware, but constantly judge and evaluate ourselves in our experience? Are we endlessly looking for something better than what is? Are we trying to get the ultimate control? Or can we allow things to arise as they do, see and perhaps even appreciate them for what they are, and let them go when it's their time to go, even when it's difficult emotions and experience? Doing that is exactly what the quality of patience, gentleness and kindness, the quality of metta is all about. In such an inner environment of loving-kindness, judging, aversion, fear, anxiety will have less of a foothold. doesn't mean they won't arise, but they, they'll be less identified with. And therefore, will more easily weaken or stay quite weak and wither away. Metta, in a way, counteracts aversion, hatred, and fear. There's been a nun in Texas who's been working with relatives of murdered people. And she said, these people are longing for the murderer's strong punishment. And yet, once the murderers are killed, it still doesn't appease those relatives' thirst. The nun says it's like stilling one's thirst with salt water. It gets worse, actually. The Buddha said, hatred cannot be conquered by hatred. Only by love can hatred end. This is an ancient and eternal truth. So an atmosphere of kindness weakens the power of hatred, of ill will. Similarly, as we develop compassion, as we grow in compassion, anger, violence, and also indifference will have less of a foothold within. A text says on great compassion, like the great fire at the end of an eon, compassion consumes even the greatest negativities and unwholesomeness in just a moment. Compassion counteracts cruelty and anger of all kinds. Another counteracting force is insight, wisdom. Being in touch, for example, with the impermanent, changing nature of things and beings. That we create an inner environment in which we will grasp and hold on to things much less. That's very much what the practice of insight meditation is all about, leading to the freedom of non-grasping. Or another example, if we go through life cultivating generosity, being more concerned with what we can give 
than with what we can get for ourselves, then the power of desire and attachment, well, we can well, have less of a foothold. And we are actually in the process of developing many of these qualities here on retreat, some explicitly, like metta, for example, awareness and insight, some not so obviously, like patience, perseverance, steadiness of mind, and other qualities. So cultivating wholesome positive qualities that counteract disturbing emotions can be a really powerful, supportive aspect of practice. Guidelines. Counteracting wholesome inner environment. The next way or approach is that of meeting the disturbing emotions with bare mindfulness, with full, plain awareness. If we can do this completely, or each time we can do this completely, it will be enough. None of these emotions will be a problem, really. And that's really all. But it may sound easier than it is, as we all know. And yet it doesn't really take much practice. What it takes is understanding how to do it and then actually doing it, especially being willing to do it. In this approach, we need to really be in contact with the feeling of that emotion. It's not just observing and sort of knowing, you know, there's sadness or loneliness or irritation or anger from some distance. Also not trying to remove it or change it or destroy it or get rid of it, which is what we most naturally are inclined to do. Also, of course, it doesn't mean to get lost in the story and the drama that often comes with those emotions. Rather, it's to be aware of the emotion itself. And to be able to do that, a few things really help, I find. The first, of course, there needs to be a clear mindfulness rather than being lost in what's going on. And second, with it, uh, hopefully non-judgmental attitude of uh, allowing, of gentleness is necessary. And Further, it helps to be very clear on what the emotion actually is. And it helps to give it a name. And to be sure that we're really with it, helps to feel it in the body, if we can actually feel, notice sensations that are connected to that emotion. So I go through the points again. First point, clear mindfulness presence, awareness. It's what we're practicing here and no need to say more right now. Second point, similar. If we understand what mindfulness really is, 
then we are practicing a non-judgmental attitude of gentleness. And even if there is judgment, we may remember we don't have to believe the judgment so much, even if it keeps on judging what's going on in our way of being with it. To say, okay, this is what's present, and I can see it, I can feel it. I can allow it to be there. There's a willingness to let be. Next point is to, to be clear what the emotion is. And um, sometimes we are lost in a story, and then there was whatever was going on, and then we notice it, and we come right back to the breath, and we can let it go. That's fine. But sometimes it lingers, or we wake up, and we're present, and there's still a strong fear, still strong anger. It can be very helpful to just for a moment take your time, give it the name, to be quite clear what it is. It seems a little like the story of Rumpelstiltskin, if that's how you pronounce it. That's why how we pronounce it. When they knew the name, that ban was sort of broken. It helps to know the name. We can connect. So just for a moment, and I'm not talking about a minute or ten minutes, but just a moment to say, oh, there's this feeling. What is it? Oh, is it? I'm disappointed or sad or lonely or I feel rejected. There's a feeling of being lost or bewildered or insecure or helpless. There might be anger, irritation or aggressiveness or impatience or boredom or being greedy or possessive. There might be anxiety, worry or fear or even panic or guilt, or pride, or embarrassment, or indifference. Just name it for a moment. And of course, there are just as many pleasant ones as unpleasant, unwholesome ones. We may feel thrilled, delighted, satisfied, lively, hopeful, feeling open, generous, kind, tolerant, interested, calm, trusting, content. But since this talk is about working with difficult feelings, I talk mostly about this. Clear mindfulness, being present, knowing what's going on helps. Doing this in a not-so-judgmental way. An attitude of metta helps in that, allowing it to be the way it is. Recognizing the emotion for what it is, perhaps giving it a name. And the fourth point is to feel it in the body. Unless we can feel it very clearly in the mind, to just check in the body, how do I feel this fear? Or what is this panic manifesting like in my body? Oh, is it sort of waves that are rolling through me? Or is it tightness? To see, to describe, oh, tightening of the throat, or it's vibration in the center of the stomach, or it's a sensation of heat rising up in my chest, or teeth clenching. And if we can turn the mindfulness away from being lost in the story to the feeling and emotion, and also feel it in the body, it's much easier to stay present with it. It's still not so easy because it's unpleasant, and we don't want it to be unpleasant. We 
therefore think it should go away. So possibly we do try to do those four things in order for it to go away. Now I'm doing the right things, now it should go away. When we do that, number two is missing, which is the allowing attitude, the allowing mindfulness. All of this can help us to be in quite close contact with the feeling, with that emotion, with its taste, with its texture, so so to speak. That's very different. It's entirely different from getting lost in it, from being completely identified with it. It asks for our willingness to be present with it. So it's not to express it, it's not to suppress it, it's to stay present with it. And we might begin to appreciate its richness. Anger can be quite amazing as an intense energy. If we're not so caught in why it is and what should change and whether we should have it or not have it, to allow oneself to feel that is quite uh, interesting. Allow it to be such as it is, to be felt that way. And then we're not thrown so much by it anymore, whatever it may be. As we're right there with it, doing absolutely nothing, we discovered that there's actually a kind of a space around it. There's a kind of an openness. The emotion or energy is felt vividly and nakedly. And at the same time, its insubstantiality becomes more visible or or, we can see it came out of nothing because of certain circumstances and situations and causes, it suddenly arose. We didn't invite it. And then even if we do nothing whatsoever against it, it's going to change. Because it has come about through causes and conditions, it will also change and disappear. Where does it go? It disappears. Some of us may think you know, we, we had, about a hundred years ago, we had this theory that we all carry this black bag with us where all the bad things are in there and from time to time they come up and get us. You know, it's called the subconscious or whatever. But really, it's causes and circumstances and tendencies and then those feelings and emotions are there and they seem very strong and that changes and they disappear. To see that without doing anything, that is really insightful. That it's really liberating. Sometimes those feelings linger a while and slowly dissolve like mist dissolves in the sunlight. Other times when the awareness is keen, it disappears almost while it arises like a drawing in water, not because we don't want it, but because it's seen and not identified with. And in this way, it becomes obvious that the nature of emotions, just like the nature of everything else, is really impermanent. It's quite empty and quite ingraspable and not really in our control. In this way, 
disturbing emotions or so-called disturbing emotions and begin to become food for insight, food for wisdom. The more we get acquainted with that approach, the more the emotions are seen to be transparent, simply like reflections on a mirror, appearing and being felt quite vividly, even quite painfully, and yet somehow unreal, just sensations, just thought, just emotion. Lama Shapkar wrote, In the dreams which arise in our sleep, our country, hometown, and our relatives appear very vividly, and we experience joy and sorrow, although there is not one of our relatives present, and we have not moved even a fraction of an inch from our beds. We experience it all just as vividly as in our waking hours. And similarly, all the appearances of this life, including emotions, are just like experiencing last night's dream. Everything appears and is experienced by the mind according to how it labels and grasps. The dreams of the sleeping state are devoid of self-nature. Likewise, all that appears in the waking state is also empty. With this recognition, the so-called or seemingly difficult emotions are not identified with, are not so much grasped at, and therefore have less and less power on us. doesn't mean they don't arise, but it's not so much of a problem. So, ethics, creating a wholesome inner environment, allowing clear mindfulness. Last point. Emotions come about through causes and circumstances, inner and outer, and in that way are empty in and of themselves. Therefore, nothing needs to be done for or against them, and we can relax and be easy. Eventually, and I think in some ways quite quickly, we discover that a lot of the time we don't even need to create some of the inner conditions it takes to have negative emotions arise. Or we may see them very tiny as they're just about to rise their heads and we think, oh, okay, thank you. We don't go for it and they don't arise anymore. In the hundred thousand songs of Milarepa, the five demons sing to Milarepa. The demons seem to stand for this kilesa or difficult emotions here. If the thought of demons never arises in your mind, you need not fear the demon host around you. Thus it is most important to cultivate your mind within. And the demons, the torments, 
will simply not arise. Tradition has a simile that illustrates these different ways of dealing with disturbing emotions. Someone comes along the path and sees a poisonous plant which stands for tormenting emotions. They avoid the plant because they know the painful consequences uh, of touching, getting in touch with that poisonous plant. That's the first approach of protection through ethical guidelines. We know where we get in trouble and we just avoid it. Someone else comes along the path, sees the same poisonous plant, but isn't so afraid to to be touched by it because they know they have the attitude which counteracts that poison. So obviously that second way where we develop wholesome qualities, wholesome attitudes within. And yet someone else comes along and doesn't fear or hesitate to even touch, to even gather that plant because they know how to transform the poison into medicine, into the medicine of wisdom. And of course, we are each one of these people and we use each of these strategies skillfully depending on inner and outer situations and circumstances. So all we have to know, all we have to understand in this connection is that the tormenting emotions are harmful and poisonous unless we know well how to deal with them skillfully, unless we know how to make these stumbling blocks into stepping stones. To the degree we are able to do that, to that degree there will be more and more inner balance, inner spaciousness and ease. There will be more freedom. Just sit quietly for a moment. This talk was given by Fred Sondalman on July 12, 2005. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.